To shot reverse shot. I'm Matt Risby. Hello, and uh, joining me as always for the miracle of satellite technology is the African Queen. It's Ed Davis. How the devil are you, sir? Good. Yeah, just engaging in some witty banter, and suddenly realising that I'm in love with someone I hated. And there's some kind of a boat being dragged through a river, and all that kind of stuff. And it's kind of a retread of my performance in Tragedy of the Sierra Madre, but now people are paying attention to it. Yeah, if if people haven't seen the film The African Queen, all that was comedy gold, <laughs> I can assure you. We've got some hot off the press news tonight, listeners, because literally about two hours ago, the British Independent Film Awards happened, and we're here with a hot take on them. And good to see a couple of films that we loved uh, doing pretty well. Ex Machina was a big winner, it won four awards, perhaps slightly unexpectedly, given the strength of the stuff it was up against. Yeah, and also because... It's a genre film, and although I think maybe the British Independent Film Awards have less of a bias against genre than other film bodies, it still seemed like the sort of thing that could easily get overshadowed when you've got period dramas or films about elderly people, you know, the standard uh, British stuff going against it. Mm, All that dynamic stuff, elderly people... You know, kind of austere costumes, that kind of thing. Yeah, uh, Ex Machina picked up Best Film, Best Director, Best Actress was picked up by Charlotte Rampling. One of the aforementioned old people. Exactly. The the much-vaunted Suffragette picked up, ironically, Best Supporting Actor nod, uh, win, sorry, for Brendan Gleeson. Which which is appropriate, because he's the only good thing in that film. Yeah, I've heard that film kind of sucks. It's awful. It's it is. It's as as I was watching it, I was thinking I've never wanted a film to be better more, just because there's so much about it that should I should like. You know, the fact that it's a film about an important you know social history, that it's a film about women that's by women, and you know it has all of these things going for it. And then you watch it, and you think this is a fucking dirge. Mm. Yeah. So Brendan Gleeson sticking it to the matriarchy <laughs> 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 there. Uh, Sasha Ronan won an award. You know, all good people. Uh, Tom Hardy won. His twin brother didn't win, though, which is odd, because I thought like he would have been... For, maybe he was... I don't even know if he was nominated. I mean, I, th- I hope he goes on to more things, because I remember when Charlie Kaufman's brother was nominated for an Oscar, he never did anything afterwards, and I feel mm. like, you know, it's easy to get overshadowed by your f- more famous brother, even when you're doing good work. Yeah. You know, you've got two identical twin brothers who can act really well. Someone's got to write a script based. Maybe they could do a kind of Freaky Friday update. <laughs> Possibly. I don't know. A remake of Twins that completely ignores the central premise of Twins. Mm. These people are twins. Isn't that just actually believable? <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. just a grounded drama about two men who happen to look exactly alike. Yeah, trying to trace their mother through, you know, the kind of rigorous kind of uh, layers of bureaucracy attached to, a, like, adoption. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'd watch it. More roles for Tom Hardy's brother, please. Because, uh, yeah, he's pretty good. Dom Hardy. Dom. I thought I was going to go Tim Hardy. <laughs> and it's always weird that, like, Linda Hamilton's got a twin sister who exactly like looks like her. And she is her stunt double. And you can tell in Terminator 2 Judgment Day, there's a bit where the T-1000 is Linda Hamilton. And behind her, the actual Linda Hamilton comes out. 
but that's her twin sister. That's quite cool. Like if you had a twin sister, who, you could probably. That's an excellent stunt double right there. Yeah, the only other ones I can think of is Rami Malek from Mr. Robot has a twin brother, I believe, and also um, Nicholas Brendan, who played Xander Harris in Buffy, has a twin brother, which I believe they used on occasions when they needed to have like alternate versions of him showing up, uh, which was, I think, a lot easier than all of the complex CGI they had to do for like Alison Hannigan. Mm, yeah, yeah. But there's also a great story about the Linda Hamilton twin sister she was like off set for a second and she was like tying a shoelace or something and then someone came up behind her and started kind of dry humping her and she turned around and it was Arnold Schwarzenegger and she was like uh you know I'm not Linda don't you he's like oh yeah sorry <laughs> just wandered off and that struck me as a uh always the kind of the probably what I'd imagine Arnold Schwarzenegger like in any walk of life probably in the governor's office uh would kind of do that Based- twin or no twin yeah, well, based on how his political career ended up, I think it's very indicative of uh, things that he would be doing in in his private life as, and his public life. Mm, that dry humping should have been a harbinger of things to come. In other news this week, we had a big trailer drop, uh, like a big, fat, juicy one. It was the uh, Batman vs. Superman Dawn of Justice trailer, a film that, given how much we cared for Man of Steel and Zack Snyder's work in general... I think we're going to find it quite hard to care about, but the trailer did not do anything to dissuade me from that because it looked like an absolute sack of dogger. Yeah, I mean, on top of the the general gloominess of it, which has been a problem that's afflicted the film in all of its previous images and trailers, so much so that it became a meme before any footage had been shown when people just saw that picture of Ben Affleck and it became the equivalent of sad Keanu. (laughs) It's just something you could drop into any situation. I think that the thing that has set a lot of people off is just the sheer number of characters that they introduced. Like they introduced Doomsday, who is a very significant figure in the Death of Superman arc, so that perhaps tips its hand a little bit as to something that may happen. Although, obviously, it being a comic book movie, he probably, if he does die, he's probably not going to stay dead for too long. Um, Mm -hmm. But also, you know, the first introduction of... Wonder Woman was pretty underwhelming, just kind of introduced with a sly joke saying, you know, is she with you? I thought she was with you, which is kind of bland and uninteresting and doesn't really offer much for her to do, in, as opposed to the other two characters who have been introduced a fair bit and shown doing cool stuff. Mm. So that was a little bit disappointing. The only thing about it that continues to compel me and makes me think that there will be at least some part of the film that I will enjoy is Jesse Eisenberg's Lex Luthor which is so completely at odds and out of place with the rest of the movie and so determined to be interesting and fun that uh, it makes me wonder if Zack Snyder fought tooth and nail to have him taken out of the film. Mm. It, it does strike me as either the studio or Snyder is like, we're getting a lot of notes that this film is very dour and serious. Put some humour into it, put some humour into it. And he doesn't really know how to do that. So there's some misplaced jokes. And then Jesse Eisenberg says, I'm bored. I've got a fun idea. Can I play it like I've wandered in from like a Roadrunner cartoon? And <laughs> they've just said, do you know what? Sure. Because I don't understand what you're saying to me. Because I can only do bits where it goes slow then fast again. And then that's what happened. Because he appears to be chewing a fair amount of scenery in, in the small amount of time he's on screen. Yeah, he does not seem to have been given any direction. They've just basically said, uh, you know, just make it interesting. So he's just coming in, it's like, Bruce Wayne and Clark Kent. I love bringing people together. <laughs> it is very much kind of like 
in the same sort of territory as sort of Jack Nicholson's Joker. Just this completely outsized personality, but he's not talking about devils in the pale moonlight just yet. Mm, I think it's probably more a nod to Richard Pryor in the, in the <laughs> Superman sequels. Because, yeah, he's, I don't know where he's pitching that performance, but it's not in that film. No, and that again, that's the thing that I I think I will enjoy about it, because there was no comparable performance in Man of Steel that you could actually enjoy. Everyone was very glum, and the the idea of someone going in there and just swinging for the fences and missing completely, but still really trying hard, really does uh, does appeal to me, even if it is in kind of a car crash sense. Mm. He's got a line in the trailer, something about, like, God won't end the world, the devil will do it, or something, which is delivered... So absurdly. It's like watching some kind of amateur performance uh, <laughs> in a kind of local village hall. But again, that's it, it, like you say, it's the only real draw uh, at this point. Because, uh, yeah, I didn't know what Doomsday was, but I can only assume, I don't really like, follow the comics or anything, but I can only assume from what I've seen, it's uh, leftover concept art from the cave troll from Lord of the Rings <laughs> mi- mixed with those those things with the tiny heads in the fifth element. Uh, the comparison that a lot of people made is to the Michael Bay version of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which is, it has the same kind of slightly slimy and sickly looking uh, quality. Mm. Oh, it looks like the, the giant shit monster from the end of Alien 4. <laughs> With a little kind of turned up piggy nose and just a general quality, well, yeah, general quality of a talking turd. It'd be fun to see it just go after Superman, just following around, just going, da da, and then just like <laughs> crushing Batman's head. Yeah, yeah. I don't think that any of this is going to happen, unfortunately. Because if it did, I might be kind of at some point interested in seeing it. But as it stands, not really high on my watch list for next year. A couple of fine folk have passed away this week. We've had Robert Logier, who died at the grand old age of 84, I think, this week. He's kind of a memorable kind of character actor, you know, from Scarface and latterly his performance in The Sopranos. And also... Melvin Williams has died. You might not know who he is. Not particularly a household name, but he was the inspiration for Avon Barksdale in The Wire. And he also appeared himself as the character of Deacon later on. Yeah, one of the many bits of casting in the, in the series where they cast a someone who was really a part of the uh, the game, as it were, in Baltimore, but who had maybe cleaned up a little bit. In, in Definitely in the case of Melvin Williams, Melvin Williams' case, because I think in his... In later years, he tried to help rebuild the community that he had himself helped devastate. Last bit of news this week, a bit of kind of positive, cool news. It's that Samurai Jack is coming back. Yes, that is very, very exciting news. That I there were there were two announcements within I think within like twenty four hours of each other, which were that there was going to be a revival of Samurai Jack and that there was going to be a sequel to Psychonauts, the kind mm. of amazing game from I think two thousand and six. And both mm. of which were kind of things that I thought, wow, this is kind of amazing that these two are hugely acclaimed, but also kind of cult properties have returned. And I think in, in the case of Psychonauts 2, it's due to Kickstarter and the fact that you can reach out to fans and get them to help make things that they would like. In the case of Samurai Jack, it may be, unfortunately, be because Jendi Tartakovsky now has enough money from directing the Hotel Transylvania films that he can actually afford to make a revival of the show. Mm, mm. Yeah, I'd kind of I'd kind of forgotten that Psychonauts 2 is coming. I kind of saw it very late the other night and kind of didn't register. But that's like one of my favourite games ever. And, you know, if ever you want to play a game where at the end 
you have to fight the biggest, baddest boss, but you're just a brain in a jar. <laughs> is uh, that's the game to play? That's a fucking great game. I'm glad that's gone back. Yeah, I am too. It's 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 really nice that we are we have entered this media landscape in which things that really and truthfully should not be made because under traditional kind of media structures they wouldn't be made because people would say there's no money in it. So this, this also, I think, goes to the whole thing with the return of Mystery Science Theatre 3000. Uh, we now exist in a space in which it is entirely possible for these things to exist just purely because someone can go to the fans and say, you all love this thing, I want to make it, I want to give it to you. You know, if you are willing to give me the money, then we can make this happen. Mm, mm, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, we can kind of justify talking about a video game on the show because we did mention Psychonauts a long time ago when I we talked about adaptations and I talked about that as being one of my dream adaptations. I'd like to see an animated version of that. I think that would be marvellous. So someone start a Kickstarter for that, please. <laughs> so, Ed, what are we talking about this week in the bulk of the episode? Well, a few weeks ago, I went to see the Bond movie Spectre. I didn't care for it all that much. I didn't think it was terrible, as a lot of people said, but I just kind of thought it was mediocre. But one of the things about it that really annoyed me was that they cast Christoph Waltz, who is a terrific actor who has demonstrated over two Oscar-winning performances in Quentin Tarantino films that he is very good at delivering kind of flowery dialogue and generally being uh, someone who, who can kind of eat all the serenity but not completely doubt, devour the film. Mm. You know, he is a very outsized performer and he, he can do a really, really great things with that. And what annoyed me about his performance in Spectre is that... He basically does none of that. They give him this kind of very rote, uh, rote and boring dialogue and it's very expositionary and there's no real opportunity for him to add much character or flavour to it. And so that got me thinking about the topic of wasted potential, of films that squander great performers or great talent in a way that doesn't work out, films about uh, characters who are just kind of wasted potential and also just kind of in a broader sense, the careers of actors, filmmakers, whatever, who could have done great work, but for various reasons, it, it just never seemed to happen for them. History is littered with examples and kind of maybe dialing back to the most famous example, uh, which we'll kind of use as the springboard uh, to kind of investigate how this happens. So someone like Orson Welles, someone who aged 24 or 5, I think, made Citizen Kane, widely regarded now as one of the greatest films of all time, was kind of noted at the time for its kind of stuff that it kind of advanced through, uh, that no one had kind of seen before or done before, techniques he used and, and kind of the, the complexity of the storytelling, etc., etc., but never really reached those heights again. And his wasted potential can probably account to the fact that it was never his fault, it was more the studio's fault, uh, because they just wouldn't stop meddling with his stuff because he just wasn't trusted. Yeah, and, and because... I was going to say Charles Foster Kane, but uh, that's not who it is. It's William <laughs> Randolph Hearst. It basically set out to destroy his life and his career in every way that he can. And I think the thing about the, about Orson Welles that's really, really kind of amazing and also deeply tragic is that he kept making films throughout his life and they're all kind of, some of them are amazing, some of them are, are kind of misfires, but they're still fascinating. And I think that when you see something like F for Fake or even something like Lady of Shanghai or The Stranger or The Trial, and you look at those films and you think, it's amazing that a guy who had to scrape together and hustle 
for all of this funding who had to sometimes make films over several years because funding would run out and then he would just reassemble as much of the cast as possible still made these great works of cinema and you just think imagine what he could have done if you know this old newspaper man hadn't done everything in his power to destroy him and he had been able to do this sort of work with studio funding Mm. And studio support, because, I mean, things like... I mean, he got funding for things like the Magnificent Ambersons, but then he got kind of taken out of his hand and kind of butchered. Or Touch of Evil, which had the same... exactly the same thing, where I think that may have been the last one he made, where he worked for a studio and he made this amazing uh, noir, which in some ways is kind of the culmination of the entire genre and, and is often used as the demarcation point at which the classic noir period ended. And then it was taken away, they cut it down, and it had to be reassembled from copious memos uh, you know, 30, 40 years later. And yeah, again, you can see there that he was someone who knew how to work within the system and who could do really great work, but he was just frustrated at every possible opportunity. And as, as great as his body of work often is, his, his whole career is basically a big what if. You know, if, if he had had the money, if he had had the support, you know, imagine how different the like American cinema would have been if he had been able to crank out a few more films of the scale and ambition of Citizen Kane instead of having to kind of try and replicate it with a fraction of the money and the support he deserved. Mm. Would, a, would a kind of modern-day equivalent of, of Orson Welles be someone like, it's not exactly a parallel, but someone like Terry Gilliam, someone whose reach often exceeds their grasp and will struggle to maintain the support of the studio because his films are generally quite kind of ambitious money-wise and generally don't make a lot of money or do well critically but don't really bring in the bucks. I, I would say he definitely falls into that because he is someone who has demonstrated that he can actually make films that are you know crit- uh, uh, commercially successful, commercially viable even if on paper they may not seem it, stuff like 12 Monkeys and The Fisher King both made, you know, a, a decent amount of money when they came out and neither of which, if you look at what they involve, you would think, yeah, that's a surefire moneymaker, a time, a, an incredibly complex and sad time travel movie or a film about a grieving homeless man. Uh, you know, that neither of those are the sort of films that you think that's, you know, money in the bank, but he was able to do those and he made great films from them. But then... After the failure of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, he basically has not been able to make a film either with that level of support or with the level of freedom he had been demanded. Like The closest he got would be something like The Brothers Grimm, where he was given the money, but he was they, they meddled with it to the extent that production was shut down and he went off and made another film in the interim. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Is there any other examples you can think of where perhaps a film director or actor has been... Potential has been squandered by things out of their control. I feel a big one would be someone like Charles Lawton as a director, mm-hmm. because obviously he made Shadow of the Hunter, which is one of the greatest. Night of the Hunter. Sorry, yeah, Shadow of the Hunter. I've, I'm combining Night of the Hunter and Shadow of the Colossus, which sounds amazing if you want to imagine like kids climbing on the back of a giant Roger Mitchum to stab him. <laughs> um, we're also combining like the names of like some of the like UK gladiators, <laughs> which, which again I would watch. You know, yeah, uh, yeah. So Night of the Hunter is what I meant to say. Yeah, he made Night of the Hunter, which is you know one of the all-time great works of cinema. It 
did not do well at all. It was basically almost forgotten until it was rediscovered in later years and people said, oh, actually, no, this is amazing. And that's that's another case where you think if that film had, had found an audience at the time or if the uh, studio had really supported it, uh, you know, in, in many cases, it's kind of a mixture of the two where the studio don't really go all out for a film so audiences don't find it, but also audiences don't kind of seek out these things. So it, it's, sometimes it's hard to tell who's at fault, but... I think in general it, it's easiest to blame the studio. Um, but yeah, if if they had been there and supported it, he could have had a fascinating and interesting career as a as a director. But instead, he made the one film, this kind of shining, beautiful thing, and then never directed again. Mm, mm, absolutely. What about directors who are obviously very very talented and are capable of uh, occasional brilliance? but have never quite lived up to their early promise or managed to kind of match maybe their debut film. The most obvious example for me is someone who keeps making his debut film. It's Neil Blomkamp, someone we keep talking about, who, Mm. you know, District 9 was a a kind of a a very kind of dynamic and exciting calling card, and then he's just left the same calling card three times (laughs) with diminishing results. But someone like M. Night Shyamalan, who uh, Sixth Sense was very good, Unbreakable, had kind of flashes of absolute genius in it, really good in parts, and then, you know, his later films kind of had little bits in were good, and then uh, they turn out ultimately to be dreadful. He, is he someone that will kind of never recapture that, or is it just a one-trick pony and it just turned out the trick wasn't very good? I think that his most recent film, The Visit, maybe suggests that he could become an interesting filmmaker again um i didn't see it but the reviews for it were kinder than anything he'd had in a while and they said it was this interesting weird dark comedy slash horror hybrid and that it it was made like the most interesting thing he'd made in the world and also the fact that he largely self-funded it and it only cost like five million dollars and it made something like 60 million in the Mm. u.s at least so i think it demonstrated that when he is kind of invested in something and he's not just a a gun for hire as he was on After Earth or if he is uh, restricted in some way so he's not working with too much money and he has to try and be clever and inventive, maybe that augurs a, a different phase in his in his journey as a filmmaker. But at the same time, he is someone who has a past history of allowing his ego to overwhelm his creativity and destroy his career as happened on lady in the water so the the the, my my main fear is that he will look at that and say see i was right the whole time i'm just going to do everything exactly the same as i always do Mm. what about someone like richard kelly who uh, made a hugely promising debut in the in the shape of donnie darko but then kind of everything else he has done since uh, including the batshit crazy uh, southland tales and the kind of completely underwhelming the box mm. you know kind of is that just a again a case of someone who struck gold the first time and has come up empty ever since or is it someone who just can't quite find the right outlet for what they want to do or are all of these examples people who are hampered by the limitations of their own ideas i think that richard kelly is definitely someone who has not found the right outlet for it because i think that something like southland tales speaks of a vision that is maybe perhaps not suited to narrative filmmaking mm-hmm. in 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 that kind of limited way of trying to 
hammer something into kind of a two two and a half hour format i think it's it's kind of very ambitious and strange and it's the sort of thing where you think maybe if this had just been a comic book or if it had been a tv series although uh, obviously i think it came out about 10 years too early to be a tv series i think that there are things where you look at that and you think this level of craziness could work and could be found in a different format but just trying to cram it all into a single film doesn't work and i think if you look at something like the box which you say like you know that is kind of an underwhelming film uh, but i think then you can see that his the strength of his personality is so so much so strong that when you look at that film you think okay it starts off as the richard matheson short story and then it jumps full on into kind of insane richard kelly land and mm. again it's the, you get the sense that this film could have been a kind of a standard uh, thriller and then he tried to take it into this incredibly ambitious way that just doesn't really quite work and again suggests that maybe this is uh, he's kind of taking ideas that he's been working on for a while and just trying to realize them any way that he can Mm. what is he doing now is he still kind of plugging away or is he just kind of um settled into a routine of, of doing little bits like tv and stuff uh, I think he was he was definitely writing scripts for a while because he also wrote the script for Domino, mm. uh, the the equally nutty uh, Tony Scott movie. Uh, let's see, he's got three projects in development. His next film's out next year called Soulmates, which has literally no information on it whatsoever. Mm. So that one could be very exciting or completely insane. But we'll have to find out. But yeah, he does have <laughs> he does have things in the pipeline and again he's the sort of person who i'm even though donnie darko is the only film of his that i out and out like and even then it's the sort of thing thing where i look back and i think do i like that or do i like it because i was 16 and it was really interesting and it it introduced me to echo and the bunny man but yeah i'm always interested what he can do because he is someone who has who definitely has a vision even if i'm not sure even he quite understands it Mm. Anyone else you can think of who's uh, kind of early potential or kind of the potential of their ideas is is not being quite realised? Going back to classic Hollywood, Eric von Stroheim, I think, is kind of a big example of this. He was someone who, in his early career, made a lot of really great films and then he made Greed, his kind of nine-hour adaptation of every single page of a novel and which was taken away and cut down to I think about two hours with an awful lot of title cards and I can't see why they'd want to trim that nine hours I wouldn't touch a frame yeah I mean run it in a theatre for a century and you'll make a profit (laughs) but yeah like, like he was someone who through his ambition and being completely unwilling to compromise essentially sabotaged his entire career and became pretty much the character he plays in Sunset Boulevard I think that's that's another example of someone who just had this tremendous potential and then through the sheer ambition of their vision essentially became unemployable. He did great work and you think he ends up in this horrible catch-22 where I guess if he had compromised and made a four-hour version of Greed or something, he may have had a longer career and have directed more than 12 films. But then he wouldn't be this great vision either that people remember as one of the all-time greats who was kind of cut down in his prime. So, you know, it's it's kind of hard to balance there. Uh, someone who I think still shows flashes of his early promise would be someone like John Singleton, who I think made a very promising debut in Boys in the Hood. And, you know, he did stuff like Poetic Justice, which is really interesting. And he was very much someone who 
did a lot of really great work kind of chronicling the black experience in America and really tried to make these accessible but personal studio films. And then at a certain point, he became the guy who dressed the Shaft remake and Too Fast, Too Furious. Mm, I think with John Singleton, the problem is, uh, obviously Boys in the Hood was, was huge. He was the youngest person to ever be nominated for an Academy Award for Best Director. I think he was 23, possibly a little, maybe younger. Yeah, he, um, went, he when... went basically straight from being a PA on Pee-wee's Playhouse to uh, being nominated for Best Director. Then I think uh, he was also the first black director to be nominated for uh, Best Director. And the films he made after Boys in the Hood seemed to kind of set his stall out as in he wanted to be an important black filmmaker. Unfortunately, some of those films, I think Poetic Justice, uh, Higher Learning, I think there was Rosewood, was it called Rosewood he did as well? Uh, Yeah. Were all kind of really pretentious and unlikable. And... He then took on the job of doing the Shaft remake, which I think was him saying, I don't want to be the next kind of important black filmmaker and I will just take the genre stuff, which is a real shame because the there's so much more he kind of could have done. And I just wonder whether he got to the point where he was kind of tired of his films being received in a lukewarm way and he just wanted to kind of get the train set out again and play with it. The progression of his career when you see that and then... Even like enjoyable films like Four Brothers, you can really see that at a certain point, I guess the grind of trying to force his vision on this sort of stuff and of trying to get the films he wanted to make made would just make you think either I can just keep, you know, kind of banging my head against this or I can just take the easy way and just the easy way and just make, you know, kind of genre stuff, you know, make a film called Abduction with Taylor Lautner, you know, Mm. which I think is not a fate I would wish on anyone. But, you know, that's that's the, the progression of his career suggests that at some point that he did just say, you know, I, I just have had enough of trying to be the artist. Mm, yeah, yeah. Also, kind of looking through, kind of doing a little bit of research, there's it's quite kind of horrifying how fleeting someone's career can be. I found the example of the director Penny Marshall, mm. uh, kind of former actress, kind of much-loved, moved into directing in the 80s. She directed the following three films in a row. She did Big, which huge hit, Awakenings, big hit, League of Their Own, we talked about the other week. Great film, big hit. And then she had a couple of underwhelming films in the shape of Renaissance Man, which I think had Danny DeVito in it, and The Preacher's Wife. And then she did a film in 2001, by the looks of things, called Riding in Cars with Boys, which I think was a Drew Barrymore kind of rom-com, and hasn't directed a film since. Now... What do we glean from that that you're only so hot, you're only as good as your last film, or there are kind of other forces at work? Because I mean, she she kept working in TV and stuff. I think, yeah, I think it is very much case. This is something that you know, I think this gets into questions of gender as well. That I think it is women uh, filmmakers tend to have a shorter career or a less prolific career than male filmmakers if they have a flop, Mm -hmm. because I think they their gender is something that they will be blamed on the film not being a success. It's like, oh, you don't want to hire a woman to direct a film because films directed by women don't do very well. Whereas I think, like, talking about, you know, Emma like Shyamalan, he's directed a lot of films that haven't done very well. He has lo- lost a lot of money for people, but he keeps getting the opportunity to try again. Whereas, like, Penny Marshall... Also, I think, you know, it, 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 at a certain point, 
you may just kind of think the grind of it, particularly if you're someone who's a beloved actress who probably has a lot of royalties, that it's not worth the kind of the stress of it all, that you can just move into TV. Someone who also, I think, has a similar story to her would be someone like Mimi Leder, mm-hmm. who was a kind of a big director in the 90s, you know, directed things like Deep Impact and The Peacemaker and, you know, these films that were pretty, pretty successful and pretty big budget as well like deep impact was a fairly big film when it came out and then in in 2000 she directed pay it forward and then she didn't direct another film for nine years a film called thick as thieves which no one has ever heard of and Mm -hmm. then in the like all the years since then it's just tv movies and tv episodes and that's another one where you think okay she was a commercially viable uh, filmmaker who had directed films that had made money and then she had one kind of foul up with this kind of inspirational in quotation marks drama and then that's basically her career as a feature filmmaker just over mm. and now she's just been consigned to tv where she still you know does good work and, and works on good shows but you kind of feel like she's someone who you know she should be considered for you know any job that men are being considered for but she isn't because she directed pay it forward yeah absolutely in terms of like actors who uh, perhaps have kind of wasted their potential. It, uh, do you think that the, the kind of the slide or the downward spiral or the kind of the wasting of that potential is more in their hands than a director might be kind of uh, more subject to external forces? I'm thinking of someone like Marlon Brando, who um, it's weird to talk about someone who's wasted their potential, uh, given the amount of kind of iconic roles and classic roles he has embodied. But he is someone who, towards the end of their career, could have kept working for you know a considerable time but showed such abject contempt for his profession and the movie business that he never ever ever got anywhere near what he was ever capable of and i think also in the case of of Marlon Brando he was so crazy in <laughs> some respects i mean if you if you you know obviously there's that documentary about the the island of dr monroe and there's lots of stories there about his eccentric behavior i think that he was someone who just i don't know if it was contempt or if it was just that he had reached just this kind of level of success and acclaim that he just didn't really know how to relate to normal people anymore that yeah he was just not interested in being you know, the actor that he was to being someone who was kind of pliable and easy to work with. And I think that it's, uh, yeah, that, that it's interesting to think how different he is perceived at the end of, of his career compared to the beginning. Because obviously mm. in the beginning, he, along with James Dean, but obviously in a more kind of significant way because he did more work, essentially reinvented the notion of what screen acting was in a major way. And then... By the end of it, he was just kind of punchline. There's that uh, joke in The Simpsons when uh, Homer goes to the Guinness World Record office to kind of ask, see if he can break something. And he sits down next to a huge fat man. He says, are you here for world's fattest man? And he goes, no, I'm here for world's greatest living actor. And it's like Marlon Brando. That's Mm. that's what he was. (laughs) Towards the end, he became this punchline. And I think that is kind of indicative of both changing tastes and people not being that interested in what he was doing, but also his own personal unwillingness or inability to kind of work with other people. Mm. Yeah, certainly on that Moreau documentary, which we've kind of talked about a bit, it did kind of 
seemed to me as though he was like, I don't want to be in this film. I don't want to travel to this place. Um, I don't want to do it. I'm not interested. And they're like, okay, we'll pay you $4 million. And he's like, oh, God, all right, I'll go. But I'll be an asshole all the way through it. I'm going to put an ice bucket on my head. Uh, demand a small dwarf uh, is dressed exactly like me and plays a miniature piano uh, in most scenes. And at the end, I'd like to be turned into a dolphin. Yeah, oh yeah, that was wasn't that his suggestion being that he would take his hat off and there'd be a blowhole and they that was one of the few <laughs> that was one of the few crazy ideas he suggested that ended up being nixed. But <laughs> most most everything else ended up in the film because he was Marlon Brando and I think ev- that whole film was such a complete and utter nightmare that they just said, Yeah, fine, whatever, you can just have this white face paint on all the time and you can not stand up in in any scene. Mm. But, I mean, that's kind of what he did for Apocalypse Now. Um, (laughs) You know, kind of in the sense that, you know, only five years previous, uh, or six years previous, he'd been in The Godfather. And, obviously, he won an Oscar for that. But, again, wasn't interested in playing ball with that, sent a kind of actress posing as a Native American woman to accept it. Pretty much just a royal John Wayne. (laughs) Um, But yeah, he kind of turned up for Apocalypse Now late, uh, overweight, didn't want to do the dialogue that uh, Francis Ford Coppola wanted him to do, kind of essentially forced a rewrite of the entire film. And if that's not contempt, I don't know what is. Or at the exact same time, Superman, where he showed up not knowing his lines, so they just had it written on um, placards dotted around Mm. the, the set. So as he was walking around, and it looks like he's being dramatic and kind of thinking you know, out loud or just kind of having a noble look on his face. It literally is like, there is my next bit of dialogue. There's my next bit of dialogue. Okay, I am done. Peace out. Mm. Which is what I imagine he said. Because, he's, yeah. I mean, he was so ahead of his time. He was, yeah. But yeah, it is kind of highly, highly kind of frustrating to look at those amazing performances and think about how many more there could have been. Mm. I think you can also see that a lot of, of actors of not necessarily that generation because he was a bit older than a bunch of them but they certainly people who did a lot of their best work in the 70s seem to go through that you know obviously De Niro and Pacino both are actors whose best work is behind them and now it is very much a case where you look at their their reviews and what people say about their current work and any time that they're in a film and people say oh they're not terrible Mm. that is that is basically you know, cause for celebration, you know, when he was nominated for being in Silver Linings Playbook for a form of performance that I don't think was good enough to be nominated, but in the kind of, I guess, in terms of his average at that point of the quality of his work was such a big spark in quality that it, it felt like it needed to be nominated. You know, yeah, that... well, it, it felt a little bit like, you know, when you see Jack Nicholson or Pacino or De Niro, any of those guys, like it's less about it being a good performance or an Oscar worthy performance or an awards worthy performance. It's just it's kind of crazy to see them act again. Mm. We're just so used to seeing them coast through and be given lines and no character and you know, to be honest, a lot of they're not getting great parts. So when they get something to get their teeth into, it's just really, really refreshing to see them act again. And it's like industry just rewards that with kind of Oscar nominations, even though it's kind of comparatively nowhere near their best stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of in a weird way, like when uh, president Obama was given the Nobel peace prize, as soon as he was elected president, where Mm. it's kind of like saying, this is 
kind of more hoping what you will do. You know, when when uh, De Niro is being nominated for Silver Linings, Silver Linings Playbook, it's almost kind of like, see, you can do good work, so more of this, please. And then doesn't doesn't kind of play out that way. And I feel like uh, in a lot of cases, recognition like that is is born out of a desire for them to have a kind of a run of really great work that is equal to, well, maybe not equal to them at their best, but at least allows them to go out on a high. And I think that if you look at someone like Mickey Rourke's a good example of this, Mickey Rourke, who was kind of a very exciting young actor who did a lot of really, really fascinating and great work in the 80s and then destroyed his face in the 90s by deciding that he was going to become an amateur boxer and kind of threw away his whole career on a lot of kind of payday jobs that were terrible. And then he came back with The Wrestler, a film where his kind of battered visage was actually a real asset and he gave this really good soul performance and he was Oscar nominated for it. And in my opinion, should have won, but, you know, it was still a good performance for him to give. Uh, And then you kind of think, oh man, this is going to be like is going to revive his career and then like two years later oh he's in the expendables you know mm-hmm. he, he was able to parlay that into maybe higher to bigger paychecks but it, it didn't exactly lead to a renaissance of his career as a whole yeah and he's still stuck with that face <laughs> um and you know not every film he can play some kind of like someone who's been kind of battered and bruised and and kind of churned up by the you know meat grinder of life do you think that people, when like Robert Rodriguez was reading the Sin City comics, he's just kind of like, God, we need someone with a really fucked up face. <laughs> Who is it? He's like, oh, Mickey Rourke. That's the, it's, it's such a weird way to get typecast. It's like, mm-hmm. we need someone who's really messed up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It will save he's... us a lot of money on the makeup. Mm. <laughs> yeah, he's the go-to guy for, uh, for kind of horrendously scarred people. Speaking of acting... I found quite a few examples of great casts that have been assembled in dreadful films or films that in no way kind of honour how good the casts are. Um, there's a couple from last year that came out, uh, one which I talked about quite a bit, which is called This Is Where I Leave You, which had uh, Jason Bateman, Tina Fey, Adam Driver, Connie Britton, Jane Fonda, Catherine Hahn, Rose Byrne and Timothy Oliphant and managed to be dreadful. But then mm-hmm. that's no by no means the worst offender last year. We had the Monuments Men, which not only wasted cast including George Clooney, Matt Damon, Kate Blanchett, Bill Murray, John Goodman, and Jean Desjardins. It also wasted one of the most fascinating stories of the of the World War Two kind of era, and kind of turned into a right turgid mess. How do you think it's just hard to balance big casts like that that have got so much star wattage? I mean, we were talking about this. A- a few weeks ago in terms of like the the new star wars the idea of having to introduce lots of new characters and balance them with the old characters it just seems like there's, and there's only so much kind of screen time unless you're eric von stroham you, know, <laughs> you, you you're not going to make an, a nine hour version of the monuments men so you're just going to have to try and balance it um and the monuments men is like it is such a disappointment because you think there are so few new takes on world war ii movies and you find one and you just bungle it so badly so much so that George Clooney apologised about it in emails that were then leaked as part of the Sony leak, which mm. uh, really endeared George Clooney to me more than he already had endeared himself to me. He's kind of like, oh, he feels really bad, but, you know, the film's still pretty terrible. But I think if you look at basically almost any Agatha Christie adaptation kind of suffers from that problem as well, because particularly Murder on the Orient Express adaptations, they always have to kind of balance all of these big stars who want to be in it because 
essentially all you have are showy roles for people to mm-hmm. kind of show off and then you know eventually just everything just resolves and wraps up and any situation where the, the whole point of it is hey there's a lot of characters we can get lots of actors in who are big names there's going to be a lot of uh ego or there's going to be a lot of just difficulty in balancing everything in the writing and the editing and and you end up with things like august osage county which is kind of the gold standard for me of a film that completely wastes a a great stage play b a fantastic cast and see you know a competent director in john wells i mean he's probably the reason why it didn't work isn't it because he doesn't have the kind of ability to make that melodrama work in the same way that william friedkin did with killer joe or bug but you know there is so much there that it should work but then you watch it and you think i have no idea what this film is trying to be and i really wish that it had been so much better than it was Mm. I think I might have topped it with kind of biggest waste of uh, source material and cast. Everyone w- will have forgotten about this. I think it came out probably about 10 or 12 years ago. Uh, All the King's Men, uh, billed mm-hmm. as a serious Oscar contender based on one of the great American novels, starring Sean Penn, Jude Law, Kate Winslet, James Gandolfini, Anthony Hopkins, Patricia Clarkson, Jackie L. Haley and Mark Ruffalo. And yeah, it's really crap. Yeah, that's that's another thing that often get wasted is when you have like a great work of literature, and especially one that's already been done well before. It's going to be very hard to kind of really make it stand out. And I think there, where you end up with this film that's just kind of really turgid and boring, when mm. it is, you know, great and fascinating and a wonderful book that was turned into one of the kind of great American classics. It's very, very hard to kind of live up to those expectations, but that's one that even didn't that didn't even live up to the expectations of being a decent film in its own right. I uh, was thinking about kind of how good some of these casts look looked on paper, um, and I found another cast that looks amazing on paper, but kind of not so good in practice. Uh, the Star Wars prequels, not wanting to hammer <laughs> them, don't really get much don't really get much abuse for their cast. But on paper, their cast includes Liam Neeson, Ewan McGregor, Natalie Portman, Samuel L. Jackson, Ian McDermott, Christopher Lee, Terence Stamp, Kira Knightley, Rose Byrne, Brian Blessed, Frank Oz, and Jimmy Smits. And how on earth that isn't, there's not any one good performance in any of those films is beyond me. Yeah, I mean, the closest you get is Ewan McGregor, who kind of at a certain point had this interesting balance of not really giving a shit, but also investing his character with a certain degree of charm and i don't know if that was because he started ignoring what george lucas was telling him to do or or what but he definitely seemed as a after the first one where he's just incredibly wooden and uninteresting as the other ones he does seem to have a little bit of fun in the kind of sense of hey i'm getting played to fuck around with a lightsaber i might as well just have a smile and a smirk on my face throughout Mm. Yeah, which is weird considering how little he enjoyed the process of like all the green screen and stuff mm. do you think that and you know speaking of uh the, the star wars prequels being kind of pilloried for everything is uh often talked to as a, uh, a wasted potential in terms of it being a good idea because when the idea came out they were going to do it everyone was like oh, that sounds like a cool idea and now we've seen the films, we're like, oh, man, that wasn't such a good idea. Let's not do that. Any films you can think of that take a really good central premise and piss it up the wall? Because the film that I'm thinking of is uh, the film Flatliners, which I always mm. thought was a brilliant idea for a film, which, if you're not familiar, it's about a group of medical students 
who decide to uh, try and kind of study what happens when you die and, you know, kind of near-death experiences and, you know, do you go into the light and stuff like that. And uh, so they decide to go about this by meeting up in, on kind of stormy nights in kind of very atmospheric conditions in their old kind of medical school and purposely stop each other, stop each other's hearts, then document what their experiences are. But they go through to kind of the other side and, yeah, some of the shit that happens is deeply disturbing. But the film is terrible. Mm. Uh, in the hands of Joel Schumacher and he kind of wastes the cast including kind of I think uh, is it Kevin Bacon Julia Roberts Kiefer Sutherland that is that kind of just after the Brat Packy era but those kind of actors and uh, yeah I always thought it was kind of a ripe for a remake um, because it's a really good solid idea executed incredibly poorly I kind of feel like Andrew Nichol is the king of that mm. entire subgenre of films that should be a good idea or that have a good premise, but then in execution don't kind of work. I mean, he, he looked out with Gattaca, which mm-hmm. does take an interesting idea and sees it through to its logical conclusion. But everything he's done since then, it's like Simone, which is about artificial intelligence in time, which takes a kind of a goofy twilight zone premise of like, oh, time equals money, which I, I feel bad making fun of because I also wrote a short film with the exact same premise and it was equally terrible. But <laughs> it was like, you know, it's, it's like an idea where you think, you know, done well, this could be fun. Or this year he did a film called Good Kill, which has been pretty much forgotten, but it's about drone warfare. You know, he has this career littered essentially with films that have these big ideas that don't really kind of work. I think he wrote The Truman Show as well, where it's, again, is another, Mm. yeah, which is another kind of big high concept thing. And he is someone who I think has these kind of ideas, which he... In the, he doesn't have really the skills as a director or a storyteller to make work, which is why the best film he's involved with was directed by someone who isn't him. <laughs> yeah, it's always, I think a lot of the cases we've talked about in this, whether it's directors or kind of writers or whatever, it often takes not using your own material to kind of spark you into life. And we've said it often about Neil Blomkamp, Maybe the worst thing about his films is that they're his films, that they're his ideas, and that he's essentially recycling the same idea. And perhaps if someone just gave him a good juicy script and he can just kind of forget about trying to kind of shoehorn this stuff in that he thinks is interesting that no one else does and just make a good fucking movie. Yeah, and also I think in in his case, it seems to be that the first film he made was such a runaway success and that you know, the the chance to make a feature film and to make one that you write and direct and that is entirely your vision, you know, that's got to be a high that is very, is very enticing to chase. And mm. so you kind of think, okay, people liked that it had mech suits in it. Okay, the next one's going to have lots of mech suits in it. Or, oh, people kind of liked those social commentary. We're going to have the real ladle, really ladle on the social commentary in the next film. And so it's not just a case that he maybe has just one idea, but that he's maybe kind of a little afraid to try other things because he knows that this thing worked once and, and maybe it'll work again and uh, so far uh, he's he's one for three in that regard mm. it's very much the idea of it if it ain't broke just keep doing it over and over again um, yeah which is also the definition of insanity absolutely especially when you expect different results so yeah i think that's a pretty good roundup of uh, wasted potential let's do some recommends this week, uh, I'm going to pick something inspired from a piece that I read on the AV Club this week, Nathan Rabin's uh, kind of ongoing column, uh, My Year of Flops, which is a kind of extension of a great book he wrote 
which is a collection of all those kind of articles where he examines a film that didn't do very well and kind of tries to ascertain whether it was just, you know, a balladier in the first place or there was other forces that deemed it to fail or whether it was just a good old-fashioned stinker. And he was talking about Wish I Was Here, the Zach Braff film. This is a roundabout way of me getting into the film I'm going to talk about because I would never recommend anything by Zach Braff because I really find his films dreadful and so did Mr. Rabin, kind of didn't enjoy it at all, but... He talked about Garden State a little bit in that article, which reminded me of the film Beautiful Girls, which is the film that uh, came out about 10 years before Garden State and did the exact same thing, but did it 10 times better with uh, 10 times the charm, a slightly less hipsterish soundtrack, um, but kind of kind of treads over those same beats of like someone who kind of perhaps is a little bit aimless in life and returns to his kind of small town home and kind of tries to reconnect with his family and his friends who he kind of sees haven't really changed that much um, and kind of gets over all of the hurdles that Garden State fails to get over and kind of does it with a lot less kind of entitlement <laughs> and uh, kind of whiny awfulness. Um, <laughs> have you, it, it's, it's, it's Ted Demi directed it. He kind of sadly died a few years after. But yeah, it's a, it's a really good film. It's got a great cast, not wasted. In this, uh, it's got uh, Timothy Hutton, uh, Michael Rappaport, uh, Natalie Portman, Uma Thurman. There's a whole bunch of people in that in that film. It's got a very very big cast and doesn't waste any of them. It's a great film and it's on Netflix on all regions. So watch it. Have you seen it, Ed? I have not, but the fact that it's on Netflix makes me think that I should. Once uh, we're past all the awards voting season, and I stop getting screeners sent at me. Yeah, no old films until 2016. <laughs> Yeah, I think that may have to be the case. I saw the Todd Haynes film Carol, which I think we may be talking about in a few weeks. But I would kind of recommend that just implicitly. It's great, but it reminded me of his film from 2002, Far From Heaven, which is very similar in that it is also kind of a, a film set in the 50s and it's a melodrama. But for my money, is a touch better because it is has this added layer of being a pseudo remake slash homage of Far From Heaven, the amazing Douglas Sirk film. And I think that it's a little more full-blooded than Carol and its exploration of a relationship between a woman played by uh, Julianne Moore and her relationship with her neighbour, played by Dennis Haysbert, who's who's really great. It is a just this, this beautiful and wonderful uh, story that uh, I think has not exactly been forgotten because obviously Julianne Moore was nominated for an Oscar for it and it's a film that I think gets talked about a lot but is a film that I think people should go back and revisit in the wake of Carol which it looks like it's going to be kind of a, a big player come award season I think it's a film that is is ripe for revisiting as this kind of lavish uh, this lavish ravishing uh, melodrama mm. in the wake of Carol sounds like it's kind of like a giant dinner lady run amok all good recommendations there please feel free to check them out or not but if you don't more for you. Um, that's it this week. You can uh, find us on Twitter and uh, Facebook and all that kind of stuff. Um, if you liked listening to the episode, thank you very much for doing so, by the way. Um, then, yes, please subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher Smart Radio or Player FM. Um, and I do promise 100% that in the next two weeks I will have the new website address live. We're having technical issues with it due to the fact that both of us are rubbish at computers and things. <laughs> So, yeah, uh, not working out too well at the minute, but we'll have it ready for you, we promise. Next week, we'll be back with an artist profile, which I promised you last week, but we'll get next week. I promise. I'm making a lot of promises. I can't keep it, Red. I understand that. 
But until we come back next week with my broken promise, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.